Good morning, everybody. That was great to hear from John and the, blah, 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 the talk. It was great at the end. That's good. Hey, just uh, tomorrow as we celebrate Independence Day, so thankful that we live in the country that we do, but we need to continue to pray that uh, everyone comes to know the Lord. And so that's our prayer, but uh, we are blessed to be here for sure. Um, as Lauren mentioned about the family worship, um, just in case, just to be clear, uh, a few weeks back I mentioned that there was family worship. Anytime we have five Sundays in a month, we're going to do family worship, and that's simply to invite the children in to worship with us because it's important for the children to watch their parents worship and their grandparents, aunts, uncles, and friends. We strongly believe in that. But since we are going to be at Paulette's house the following week, we're just moving it all to Paulette's house for family worship so it's not back-to-back, if that makes sense. So July 31st is the fifth Sunday, but we will not have family worship. We'll have regular worship service. And also, uh, many of us uh, will also, it will be our last day of youth camp, and that'll be a lot of fun, so be praying. There's a lot to pray for. And last thing uh, to note is next week, Dave and Stacy Hereford from Cameroon is coming. Um, to bring the word. They are the ones who do, are the Bible translators. It's incredible. Uh, the people group that they are with have a uh, verbal language, but they don't have a written language, so they're helping create a, I don't even know how to describe it, <laughs> a written language all while translating the Bible, all while teaching them. So it's incredible. So they'll be back. They were supposed to be back, but they stayed in Cameroon doing the whole COVID stuff, so it'll be great, so you won't want to miss next week uh, as they're our impact partner. So a lot to be excited for and, um, and pray. So let's pray and uh, let's just thank God. God, thank you for who you are and what you're doing in our lives, Lord, um, as we celebrate this weekend and in tomorrow our independence as a country. We know that true independence um, is from you because we are, are saved uh, from our sin, Lord, and and we can't do it on our own. Uh, it's through your son. So, Lord, as we celebrate our independence as a country, we do pray uh, just for a, a revival in our country um, and around the world. Uh, may it start with me. May it start with us and in our families and let it spread. Let us uh, be your hands and feet to share the good news. But yet, Lord, we are excited and thankful that we do live here and we just uh, surrender over everything that's going on in this nation over to you, Lord, and uh, let's pray we need revival. So, Lord, we ask for that. Let us be agents of change for you, for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we're going to continue on in our series in Ezra Nehemiah, and we're going to end the last part of Nehemiah 2. So, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, turn to Nehemiah 2, verse 11. We'll read the rest of 2 and just the first few verses of Nehemiah 3. Nehemiah 2, starting at verse 11. Nehemiah, verse 11 reads, So I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So, though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there, or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. 
I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well that trouble, the, what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let us rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But then Sanbat, Tobat, the Gishonite, the Arab heard of our plan. They scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah 3, verse 1. Then Elishabed, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and the Tower of Hanel. People from the town of Jericho worked together worked together to them, and beyond was the Sakar son of Irman. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hashanah. They laid the beams and set the doors and then sold the bolts and bars. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your word and the opportunity to come before you. As we mentioned, we do live in a free country, and we thank you for the freedom that we have to read your word and gather together without people coming in and preventing us, Lord. And we pray for that to continue to remain. Lord, and we just pray that uh, you prepare our hearts to receive your word. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. Use me as you see fit. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us and leads us to help us better understand your word. Let us not just be hearers, but doers of the word. We thank you. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So we left off uh, last week with Nehemiah presenting to the king, Arxaxerxes. He went up uh, to the king that had been four, five months since he uh, heard from his brother who said that Jerusalem was in ruins. And if you recall, Nehemiah has never actually been in Jerusalem. Uh, he just hears a report from his older brother, we believe his older brother and friends, and he is excited to hear the news because he himself was not able to go because he's a cupbearer to the king, probably third in command. Um, and, and while he's praying through this, what should he do? God stirs his heart, calls him to rebuild the walls. The temple has already been rebuilt, but it's without protection, it's without walls, it's without gates. And, and many people believe that's why a lot of the Jewish people did not return. Less, now we're at less than 12% of all Jewish people as we return to Jerusalem under the Persian rule. So last week we talked about he, four or five months later after he'd been praying and fasting and asking God, what can I do? Help me here. All of a sudden he comes into King Arxaxerxes' presence and the king notices that he's sad and the king asks him, hey, why are you so sad? So there had to been a shock to him because to be sad in the presence of the king could mean death. Off with his head. Pretty simple. If you're sad in front of me, I'll kill you. So then we discuss, and you can go back and read if you don't, if just for a reminder on your own, that all of a sudden Nehemiah threw up one of those prayer bombs, I call it. Oh, God help me. 
And then he presents his request. He says, why, why shouldn't I be so sad? I'm sad simply because the gates of my forefathers, these walls are torn down. It's, it's in ruin, and I'm sad. This is awful, and I want to do something about it. And then the king asked the second question. He said, well, what can I do to help? Last week we discussed when we're called to do something, there's a lot of times a way out, and he had two ways out. First, when the king asked him, hey, what's wrong? He could have said, nothing, I'm good. Bit of allergies, don't feel good, my tummy hurts, whatever. Uh, but he didn't, he told him. And going back through that this week, I realized that probably this was during a banquet. And the only reason I say that is because the Persians loved to party. It is estimated that they parted 51 out of 52 weeks of the year, at least through a party. <laughs> That's a party. So in the presence of the party, he asked. And then he had a second chance when the king said, hey, what can I do to help? He could have said nothing. And we talked a little bit about our pride and how we don't like to ask for help. And, um, and thank you for the text messages that suggested that I should not use tow ropes to move a couch. I'll keep that in mind and I'll call you next time I need to move a couch. If you don't know what I'm talking about, God bless you. So here we are. We're fast-forwarding here, and, and, and he asks, he says, the king says, hey, what, what can I do to help? And he says, well, I need some timber to build the gates, and I also need a letter from you so I can go to each governor to say, hey, no, nah, no, nah, I can be here and you can't get me because the king said it was okay. And um, then the king also, we end off, the king gave him cavalry men and an army, basically, to protect him the whole way. So essentially, Nehemiah was praying, God, help me. I, I feel the stirring in my heart. You're calling me to do something, but I'm a cupbearer. I'm, I'm in this political position. I'm in a high position, but I feel like I need to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls that I've actually never seen. And you stirred in my heart something that I need to respond to. And then all of a sudden, the king provides it. So here he is, and that's where we pick off. So immediately, immediately after he gets all the things that he needs, he leaves. And now it fast forward because it's about 900 miles away. And it fast forward to verse 11, and he says, so I arrived. He arrives into Jerusalem, and he slips out during the night. He does a little bit of night recon because, if you remember, he never actually has seen Jerusalem. He's only heard reports. It's interesting to me, I, I was trying to consider this week, has, have I ever heard of a situation, felt stirred to go fix something, do something without seeing it? Usually, I'd like to go see what I'm getting myself into, wouldn't you? I mean, at least take measurements, right? Some of you perhaps are like, oh, no, I just jump in, I don't care, grab my truck, let's go. But he travels this 900 miles. He ends up being gone for 12 years, and here he is, and he does a little night renaissance, and he recon, and he's looking through, and he's trying to uh, estimate, and it talks about all these gates and these walls and, and all the rubble that he sees, and we're going to talk about it as we flip through Nehemiah 3, and I'll highlight some of the gates and the walls and what they mean. But the question, first of all, is why is gates and walls so important? And and I didn't read all of three, and we'll, like I said, we'll touch on three, but three reads like blueprints, and who's assigned to what job? I mean, that's not very exciting in the Bible. But as I was considering this, I, I came across um, a man named Dr. 
Viggo Olsen. Anyone recognize that name? Neither did I. Dr. Viggo Olsen in the 70s, he was a medical doctor and um, he was called to uh, provide uh, care, medicine, uh, to the people of Bangladesh in the 70s. And Bangladesh was just becoming an independent country. And it was devastated by the war that took place to break free. He, he estimated that less than 8% of people had homes. So he had the stirring in his heart to do something while he was there. He thought he was going to show up to provide medical care for people as they are starting a new country. And then all of a sudden, as he was reading through the Bible, he talks about, I was reading through the Bible and I got to Nehemiah 3. And I know we didn't read all of it, but Nehemiah 3, again, basically says, this person or this group built this wall and this gate. And this is what he wrote. He said, I was struck by a chapter I almost skipped. There were no expert builders. None were listed in the Holy Land. There were priests priest helpers, goldsmith, perfume makers, women, but no expert builders or carpenters. And they rebuilt the wall in just under 60 days. In his lifetime, he, bet, he helped build over 10,000 homes in Bangladesh, all while providing medical care, he and his wife. And he would go on and, and to say that he drew the line and he, was, he went back and read Daniel who predicted the coming of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, 483 years from the moment the decree was to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So from Ezra 1, which we read a month and a half ago or so, if you start the clock, 483 years from that moment that the Persian king gave the okay, Jesus arrives. Dr. Vigo Olson writes, sir, he's referring to a notable chief Scotland Yard detective who actually counted the number of days. It would have been 173,880 days from the time the okay to rebuild Jerusalem to Palm, the first Palm Sunday, April 6, AD 32. This was precisely the day that Jesus rode in. He said, I was moved by it. He said, this is a healthy reminder in a day when the church is so gawked over competence and professional skill. But I had to do something. And I thought I was going to build 10, 10 homes. Who knew I was going to build over 10,000 homes? Me, a doctor. So as we consider this, and really this theme is rebuilding hope, is what it's called. And we talked about Ezra setting things straight. Jeroboam was bring in and rebuild the actual temple. But now as we see Nehemiah, and it's usually used for leadership, and he's a great leader, obviously. But really, it's, it's rebuilding hope. So just consider that the next few weeks as, as you consider what does rebuilding hope in your life look like, as you're considering what God is calling you to do. And we've talked about that quite a bit, how God stirs your heart. And then probably half of us, if not most of us, say, uh-uh, not me. You got the wrong guy. You got the wrong girl, lady, man. Get somebody else. So as we consider this, let's just take a look at what he did, and then we'll talk about the different gates and how that, what that means to us. So as we read, he arrived three days 
later after he got all the timber and he slipped out during the night and he just went around and he was praying and he was looking at all of everything that was going on and and what used to be these great gates, the fountain gate, the dung gate, the valley gate. It even goes into verse 14 when he says, then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. Let's just consider that for a moment. It was so bad that a donkey couldn't climb over it. And it had been a hundred years. We're a hundred years since Ezra won. A hundred years, and they just let it set. Anyone ever have a car with a check engine light on? Then they just kept driving it? Or maybe put a little duct tape over it so you didn't see the light? Yeah, just fine. But why? Or there's something at your home that you started a project and it's just not done? You just kind of get used to it, don't you? Just kind of get comfortable. That wall is still half painted. I'm making fun of myself here, you know. I promise I'll get to it. But you just get comfortable. You get used to the nuance, the, just the, the nastiness. The, it just becomes a, another nuance, just another part of life. He couldn't even get through it. And then he goes on to verse 15. So then it was still dark. I went up the Kidron Valley. This is the valley that Jesus walked down from um, after he was praying on the donkey. He came in. Instead of inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again the valley gate. Verse 16 says, The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. What I really appreciate about Nehemiah is even if you consider back when he was talking to the king and saying, this is what I need, he never sold the idea to the king. He never said to the king originally, hey, if you let me go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, this is everything that you will get. You will get a fortified garrison. You will get a great army. You'll get a great post. Because if you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about Megabus, the transformer. Just kidding. Uh, Megabus, the, the king's uncle who started a revolt in Egypt. He didn't even say, hey, if we're in Jerusalem, we can stop before they get here to the capital city. He didn't say, if you invest now, here's everything that you'll get later. He didn't sell the idea. Now, if I'm going to be honest, I feel like I would have at least sold him something. All he simply did was present, hey, this is, what, this is it, this is what I need. Now look at what he does again later on to the, to the people. First of all, he doesn't include them. He walks around to inspect the walls. And then he says, he just simply presents the problem. Verse 17 again, but now I said to you, you very, know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild. This is a disgrace. I let them know the gracious hand of God. And my conversation with the king, and at once they rebuild. He didn't meet with them individually, each family leader. He didn't say, hey, 
if you say yes, then I know this guy will say yes. And if he says yes, then both of you guys can come with me and we'll talk to this big meanie here. I mean, that's how business is, right? You got to motivate people. It's leadership 101, right? Sometimes you can even say, it's a great idea. All I have to do is figure out a way to make them think it's their idea. He didn't do that. He simply said, look, it's in ruins. We have to do something. He did, however, did point out the problem. He did say that it's ruined. Um, he said, let's rebuild. This is a disgrace. Disgrace is a big deal for Jewish people, even still today. I would say it's a big deal for us today. But he just simply presented the problem. He gave God the credit, the gracious hand, and he said, we need to rebuild. And what was the reply? No, let's start a committee. Let's pray about it. Let's spend some time thinking about it. Let's do a fundraiser. Let's, let's, all these reasons why. No, they simply began the work. And in verse 19, and is those wonderful bad guys that we're going to start to dislike, Sambat, Tabith, and Gishman, the Arab, and they scoff in verse 19, contemporaneously, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? You notice how the enemy... <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, I pointed out he tells us lies that we're not good enough. And then the second thing he does is totally tells a lie. You're doing this to fight against the king. The king's not going to like this. And they're still upset because they were never invited. Their families were never invited 100 years ago to build the temple. But Nehemiah said, the God of heaven in verse 20 will help succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding the wall. But you have no share, no legal right, no historical claim in Jerusalem. You can underline this in the 60s whenever um, the Holy of Holies was giving, given over to Jordan. This was quoted over and over again by the Jewish leaders. You have no share, no legal right or historical claim. But now there's a golden dome on the Holy of Holies to this day. But why? Why? Why is it so important to have gates and walls, and why is that part of it? Why, why, why is it important to do that? Well, first of all, what, what does walls and gates show? Walls, you put up walls because what you put around them is important to you. Think about your house. Maybe you don't have walls or a fence around your property, but you do have them at your house. You put them up because it's worth protecting. You put them up because you know there's evil. But why gates or doors? Because that's the filter. Because that's to show that you're not shutting out the outside world completely. You just want to know who's coming and going. Really, part of being a parent that I've come to realize is not so much to tell my children Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And I do that quite a bit. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. But it's, it's hopefully to teach them to have a filter as to why I say yes and no and yes and no. It's so that way that when they're out in the world, whenever something comes and this world offers them something that looks delicious or wonderful, but it's a lie from Satan, they can go through their filter and say, no, this is against God's word. That's what a gate is. That's what a door is. Have you ever had a friend come over and ask them to come through your window? Only if you're sneaking your boyfriend in or your girlfriend in. 
right? Only if it was deceitful. Don't do that, by the way. Disclaimer. But when I come to your house, you invite me into your door, right? You don't say, well, can you go and climb through the bathroom window? Because I'd really like to see you do that. No, you, you greet me, you invite me in, and then you walk me out. But these walls are to protect. We protect what's important to us. And for the last hundred years, this temple wasn't important to the Jewish people. Yeah, they really wanted it, but they really didn't protect it. And it really was a sign that, yeah, it's, at least we got the temple. That's good enough. But when Nehemiah was walking around and he was looking at everything and this pile of rubble that, is, that he couldn't even ride over with his donkey, when he came back to them and he said, this is a disgrace, I, I, f- I found this quote again from Dr. Olson. He said, sometimes it takes a stranger to see sharply what has been softened by familiarity. Sometimes it takes a stranger to see sharply what has become softened by familiarity. That half-painted wall, I got used to it. I hung a picture over it so you can't see it when you come over. And go on the rabbit trail here a little bit, not that I do that often, but I do. I think this can happen to us too, that we just get so comfortable with what's going on that we get used to it. Even sin, I would suggest sin, becomes socially acceptable within the church, within the Christian community. And one of them is gossip. I think it's real easy for gossip to be accepted. Uh, my, my pastor growing up, anytime someone had a prayer request, he would always say, that's not a prayer request, that is a gossip intrusion. Another one is vanity. I mean, I can go on and on, but sometimes it just our blind spots. We all have blind spots, but I also think we also develop blind spots if we don't deal with it. And that's really what Nehemiah is here for. He needed, he was stirred, his heart was stirred. He came to rebuild the wall and the gates to protect it. More people would come, it would be safe. More people could come and worship God. And this word rebuild in Hebrew really means to make firm or strong. And the reason why that's so important is he's not here to start everything over. He's here to fortify it, strengthen it. It's a reminder that, for me, that, I, that whenever I sin, whenever I do something ridiculous, whenever I'm having a bad season, whatever language, Christianese you want to use... It's not that I have to start all over in my faith. It's just I have to be firm and strong. And sometimes, most of the time, and actually all of the time, it requires somebody else helping me along the way. So again, these walls and these gates as a filter. And what we'll notice here is we're going to see neighbors work together to build these walls. And we're going to see people build these gates that have no business building gates or walls. And what's interesting here, spoiler alert, is, and I don't have to convince you, if you're building a wall all the way around your property with a gate, if there's one section where there's no wall, then you basically don't have a wall at all. Everyone has to be in charge of their own wall. All of us have to come home and make sure that spiritually speaking, there's no gaps in our walls, no gaps in our gates. And what we'll see here in just a minute, and I'll get to it, people were willing, regardless of their skill and ability and their past. 
I mean, the priests were building walls. Priests have no business. Pastors have no business unless they speak. They have no business building things. But they did it. Goldsmith and perfume manufacturers. I can't even imagine, the, I can't even explain the image of my head that came to my mind when I thought of goldsmith and people who make perfume building a wall. And not everything had to look perfect. Who here would let their kids do more work but are worried that it's not going to look good? Who would let more people in involved in the project but you're worried, you're so concerned of how it's going to turn out that you don't invite people in to help you? Also known, who here is a control freak? Nehemiah could not be. Christians cannot be. So as we work through this and consider this, I'm going to point out some of the gates and what they represent, what their names mean. I won't do all of them. Um, I did see that there was one pastor that preached a message on each gate, and it took him almost a year. I'm not going to do that, (laughs) but it's good. So the first one in Nehemiah 3, the high priest and the other priest rebuild the sheep gate. And right after they rebuilt it, they dedicated it and set its doors or gates, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred. And I think I have a picture here of the what it looked like maybe. There it is. I painted it for you. Just kidding. Uh, see, as you could see that right in the middle it says altar temple in red. That's all that there was before Nehemiah got there. All of these gates and all of these walls were in ruined. And this is almost exactly what Solomon had built originally uh, with some changes, and they renamed some of the gates. So as we consider this first gate, the sheep gate, you'll see the sheep gate is right at the very top. And the sheep gate is exactly what it's for. It's for the sheep to come in. It's where the shepherds brought their flocks in to sell them. It's also where the perfect lamb, unblemished, would be sacrificed. And it's the same gate that's in Jerusalem now that you can see. So this was for the shepherds to bring in the sheep. So technically, all of the sacrifices that were taking place at the altar and the temple were technically if you want to be legalistic about it, technically not worthy of being sacrificed because it was not inspected by a sheep inspector, the high priest. And the only place he can inspect it is outside of the walls because once you enter it, it still had to be perfect. But that's being legalistic. Moving on, if you consider Nehemiah 3.3, the fish gate. It says the fish gate. This gate got its name because of the nearby fish market. Not an original. They did the work of rebuilding the gate. So then a couple of people from the town of Jericho worked next to them. And they rebuilt the fish gate. It was sons of Hanasa. They laid the beams and set up the doors and installed the bolts and the bars. Let's, let's move down to Nehemiah 3, 5. It says, next were the people from Teko. Though their leaders refused to work with the construction supervisors. So these were the only leaders that were at the meeting who said, no thanks, we don't want to be a part of it. 
And really the word that is used, they refuse to do the work, really means in Hebrew is they were not willing to bend their necks. They were not willing to look down. Which is really a metaphor is they were not willing to receive instruction. Have you noticed that sometimes leaders are sometimes the worst followers? They're so used to being in charge. They were not willing to do it. But yet the people of that town outside of Jericho were willing, so they built it. Moving on, the old city gate, Nehemiah 3.6, the old city gate, still there today, was repaired. They laid the beams and the doors. This was more of a dedication to the old, not forgetting the old gate. That's why they called it the old city gate. Moving on to Nehemiah 3, 8, Broadwall. Uh, the, the Broadwall was by goldsmith and uh, perfume manufacturers. These were built by men of different professions, not professional builders. They were not trained for this kind of work. It would have seemed that they had an easy excuse not to do anything. Sorry, I got to make a new batch of perfume. Sorry, I got to do some gold rings. But they jumped in. They fortified... Jerusalem, even though they were not qualified or able. The most important ability in the work of the Lord is availability. The most important ability in the work of the Lord is availability. The one with a few gifts and little talent who, who has a passion and a drive to see God's work done will accomplish far more than a gifted and talented person who doesn't have the passion or the drive to do the Lord's work. So if you're sitting here this morning and for the last several weeks talking about a calling and working for the Lord and a calling, just a reminder, a calling, first he calls you to salvation, he calls you to his son, to repentance, then he calls you to be holy, live holy, he calls you to let him be Lord of your life, and then he calls you to do something, to serve him. And that calling really is, is to join him in making disciples. So for anyone in here who thinks, I have no gifts, no talents, no abilities, all I can do is make perfume, great, you're in good company. But really consider this. The most important ability in the work of the Lord is availability. That means so much. That means clearing a spot in your schedule to be available to the Lord. That means praying about, Lord, what is it that you want me to do with the things that I can already do? That also means, this should be a great reminder, Lord, all of the skills that I have do not line up in one way or another with anything for the ministry. Several years ago, I met a man who his entire career was making, and I'm going to describe this poorly, you know the IV bags when you go to the hospital? His whole job was to make the little tube. (laughs) That was it. And he was sharing that I have... I don't even do it, he said. I don't even make the tubes. I push a button and the machine makes the tubes. What can I do? I'm not good with people. He said, I stutter. I'm socially awkward. He listed out all of the um, reasons why he's socially awkward. He said, I just make tubes. Come to find out several years after that, there was a, a group of people who went to Mexico And guess what they were in need of? The little tubes. And not only that, he said, hey, I actually know where we can get the IV bags. 
To this day, twice a year, he goes down to Mexico and he brings little tubes and I'll be back. Just be available. Socially awkward or not. I think, again, this is just a healthy reminder that God can use you in any way, especially as Dr. Olson wrote, in the church, as we gawk over competence and professional skill, and that's on the leaders, everyone is welcome to serve the Lord. As we move on, let's look at Nehemiah 3 and 10. Uh, Nehemiah 3, 10, 23, 29, and 30. I'll just mention their names. All f- one, two, three, four of these guys built a portion of the gate or the wall from their house. It says in front of their house. Now, can you imagine if we were building this church, let's say, and your house was right here on the corner? I mean, really, can you imagine it? And we come to you and say, hey, we have to build this gate. We'll go around it, right? But they didn't. All four of these guys were willing not only to use their property, but to build it themselves. I'm, and I'm going to mention what their name means in the original Hebrew because it's interesting how God calls people, names them by, why, by what they become, or he changes them. So Nehemiah 10, Jehadiah, his name means he who calls unto the God. Nehemiah 23, Benjamin means the son of my right hand. Nehemiah 3.29, Zadok means justice, justice and integrity. Meshalom in Nehemiah 3.30 means devoted. Now, if you consider this and you put those together, he who calls us, he who calls unto God is a reminder that our homes must be a place of prayer, whereas a family we call on God. Benjamin, the son of my right hand, meaning the protector, our homes must be a place of protection and peace. Zadoak, justice and integrity, means that we have to make sure that we, that our marital vows and promises are true. And Michelin, devoted, our homes must be places of devotion to God and God alone. Just a couple more. Nehemiah 3.11. If we look at Nehemiah 3.11, it reads, Then came Mekeljan, son of Harmon. And then you can read, and he repaired a small part of the wall. Do you know who this guy is? This is one of the guys that earlier in Ezra, he had to divorce his pagan wife. He was the one willing to leave because of idolatry. This is a reminder that a believer should never let past failures get in the way of serving God. Repent, set it right, make a stand for righteousness, and serve the Lord. So many times we remove ourselves because we think we're not worthy or we sin too big. And it ends up being that we're the ones who remove us, ourselves, from serving God. And the last two, Nehemiah 3.12 Shalom and his daughters, his daughters got to work on building the wall, and, this, and we live in a modern time where women have all different kinds of jobs, but at this time, women were not allowed to do manual labor. If they were caught doing manual labor, that means they were a slave, or they were kicked out of society. 
but they didn't care. They worked. Breaking away from cultural norms to serve God is hard to do. And lastly, uh, Nehemiah 3.13, they rebuilt the valley gate and dung gate. And uh, the valley gate is, or the dung gate, excuse me, is wherever if there was leftover, they push it out. That's why it's called dung, not really original in the valley gate. But imagine that the inhabitants would like to stay clear because this is the biggest, steepest part. And the only people who were allowed to come through this gate were the people who were identified as sinners. So you would imagine that this gate was not often used because who would want to come through a gate where everybody knew that you were a sinner? Who would want to come before the Lord while everyone is watching? But yet this gate was so important, it's estimated that more people came through this gate after Jesus' birth than any other gate. So as we consider all these gates and, and the reasons for this, they all represent a meaning And it all ultimately points to Christ, that we no longer need to come to a temple to to be cleansed. We can come straight to Christ, but yet this is the gate and these are the walls that our our Lord Jesus Christ went through. The people were willing to build the wall. In Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller wrote this, and I think it stands true. He says, I believe that the greatest trick of the devil is not to get us in some sort of evil, but rather have us wasting time. This is why the devil tries so hard to get Christians to be religious. If he can sink a man's mind into habit, he will prevent his heart from engaging God. And that's what Nehemiah was there to do. It was to point out, hey, you just got used to this rubble. Let's do something about it. I had mentioned the story of Dr. Vigil Olson, but I just want to close with the story of a young man named Jack. He was a college student who attended a church. He grew up in that church and ended up attending a college that wasn't too far from, from this church, so he made a decision to stay. Some of his friends decided to go to the church closer to the college, but he thought, what's an extra 10 minutes? He was willing to make the drive on Sundays. And for all intents and purposes, Jack was a normal college student who loved the Lord. But one day while he was at church, he heard a conversation taking place between a few couples. And they were older than him. He knew most of the couples pretty well, being that he grew up in the church. He remembered seeing this one particular couple, but he couldn't place their name. He had seen them on occasion, but he knew that they didn't regularly come. All he could remember is that the man was a doctor. And as he was about to leave one Sunday, he overheard the doctor and his wife make a comment, something to the effect of, oh, well, actually, Joan and I are more agnostic than anything. We are doctors after all, all, and we tend to follow science more than religion. So for young Jack, as he walked out he, and he left for home, that comment, we follow science more than anything, more than religion, just didn't sit right with him. I would imagine that it ate at him as he was driving home and as he had dinner. And I would imagine the next day in class, he probably didn't pay attention very well because it just bothered him. I would imagine that at some point, he probably called someone and told him, maybe not, but it just bothered him. 
Uh, and I would guess that sometime during the middle of the week, he realized that God was stirring his heart to something. He probably prayed about it. If he's like me, he probably tried to make excuses. Hey, God, I really don't want to do anything about it. Perhaps he tried to reason with God and whatever God was doing in his heart, he got the wrong guy. And I mean, what do you want me to do about it, God? He's a doctor and I'm simply a college student. And I would imagine that this young Jack tried to ignore that feelings and that stirring perhaps for a couple of days, but finally he surrendered. Fine, God, you win. So that following Sunday, before he left for church, he grabbed his, a book off of his shelf that he thought, yeah, that might help. And he brought that book along with his Bible. And I would imagine that he, he was waiting, anticipating, well, all right, I'm going to hand this book to this doctor. I would imagine he was sitting through the sermon, not paying attention, sitting and listening to worship, not listening to worship, not participating, uh, looking over his shoulder to make sure the doctor and his wife didn't sneak out. So as the service ends, Jack finds the doctor and his wife, and he walks up to them, and he hands them a book and says, I think you might enjoy this book, and he walks away. Actually, he writes, I stormed out. And the doctor reads the title, and the title is, of this book is Modern Science and Christian Faith, written by 13 scientists. You might have figured it out by now, but young Jack didn't know at that time that being simply obedient to God who had been prompting him and stirring his heart. What Jack didn't realize is he was handing that book entitled Modern Science and Christian Faith to none other than Dr. Viggo Olson. Dr. Viggo Olson would later on point to this book as the most significant thing God used to lead him to salvation. He, would, he wrote this, Could there be a design in the universe without a designer? Could the law of thermodynamics and other natural laws exist without a lawgiver? Think about that. Without a personal relationship with Christ, Dr. Olson and Joan would have never become missionaries. And if they never became missionaries, they would have never built those 10,000 homes in Bangladesh. And later on in their 80s, they would have never translated the New Testament into the language that the Bangladesh people speak. So before we get too worked up about we're not skilled enough, we don't have enough talents, we're not, God can't use someone like me. God used a boy named Jack that we don't even know his last name who was in college to hand over a book to a man who eventually built 10,000 homes for the people of Bangladesh. So as we consider this, and as we read valley gates and all different kinds of walls, and we talk about the importance of it, really at the heart of this is Nehemiah did not sell the idea that it's a good idea to serve the Lord. He simply presented it and let God do the work. And that's what he's doing for each and every one of us. One of the prayers that I always pray every morning is, God, I am not worthy, but you are worthy. I'm only worthy because of your blood. That's a good place to start if you're working out what it is that you feel like God is calling you to do. Let's pray. God, that is true. We are not worthy, but you are worthy, and we are only worthy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the faithfulness of Dr. Olson, of course, but um, we're also thankful for 
uh, this boy named Jack that we don't even know his last name for his faithfulness just to simply grab a book off of his bookshelf, Lord. Lord, I just pray that um, as we're reminded of the reasons for walls and gates is to protect the things that are important. Lord, will you help us protect our heart from the world? Will you help us use the gates, your word, through your spirit to filter through the good and the bad, Lord? And Lord, I, I do believe that you called each and every one of us to you. So we'll start there. Pray for anyone who doesn't know you. Your son is Lord and Savior that today could be the day. I pray for those who have put their trust in you, if they haven't made you Lord of their life, surrendered their life over to you and, and want what you want, Lord, and although we're sinners, I pray that could be the day. And I pray for each and every one of us as you have called us to join in in your work to save the world. Lord, will you encourage us and remind us that uh, it doesn't matter of our skill or our talent, but just our desire to serve you, our willingness. So will you burn that fire brighter in us, Lord? Lord, we just thank you that uh, we have your word. We thank you for your spirit that guides us. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.